John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath tells the story of the Jode family making their way from Oklahoma to Southern California in the middle of the Great Depression. The land is overcultivated and barren. The bank has repossessed the family farm and the food has run out. Their hope is that by migrating to California, they will find work, food, and a new life. But the Jodes aren't the only ones making that pilgrimage. No, hundreds of thousands of Americans from Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, and Colorado joined the Great Migration, looking to stave off starvation. And when the Jodes arrived in California, they pull into a tent village and Ma Jode begins cooking potato stew next to the family truck. And without a word, a crowd of malnourished children appear around the campfire watching silently. Steinbeck writes, the children stood stiffly and looked at Ma. Their faces were blank, rigid, and their eyes went, went mechanically from the pot to the tin plate she held. Their eyes followed the spoon from the pot to plate, and when she passed the steaming plate up to Uncle John, their eyes followed it up. A piece of potato went into John's mouth, and the banked eyes were on his face, watching to see how he would react. Would it be good? Would he like it? Scenes of famine are shocking to us here in America, the land of the plenty, but they abound in the Bible story, stretching across the Old and New Testaments. One of the great stories in the first book of Kings, and certainly one of my favorite childhood stories, relates how drought had enveloped Judah and the famine that followed. While the southern tribes of Israel gathered around the holy city of Jerusalem remained faithful to Yahweh, the ten northern tribes had fallen into idolatry after King Solomon's death. The kingdom divided, and the kings of the north, or Samaria, became more and more wicked. Ahab became king and set up altars to the gods of the Gentile nations that surrounded Samaria and married the Phoenician princess Jezebel. During this religious crisis, Elijah the prophet, whom we commemorate in this window here, appeared and declared that the Lord would cut off the rain until Israel returned to him. Then the Lord told Elijah to leave Israel and to go and live in the regions north of Israel, in a region called Sidon, modern-day Lebanon. And when Elijah arrived, he met a Gentile woman gathering sticks along the road. He asked her for a drink and a piece of bread to eat, and she said to Elijah, I only have a little flour and oil left because the drought is so great. I'm gathering these sticks to cook one last cake of bread for my son, and then we're going to die. Elijah said, don't worry, give me the bread that you are going to eat first and then make some for your son. The God of Israel promises that your flour and oil won't run out until the rain returns. Now, as a little boy who had never missed a meal in his life, this story made perfect sense to me. Elijah was God's great prophet. Why wouldn't the Gentile woman do exactly like Elijah had said. 
But as an adult, with my four children of my own, I appreciate the terrible drama of this moment. Like Ma Jode saying to the camp urchins, there just isn't enough for all of you. But the Sidonian woman did believe, and she did give Elijah the last of her flour and her oil. And Yahweh did indeed bless her and her family with food, while the people of Samaria, those ten northern tribes of Israel, suffered famine for another three years. To us, the scandal of the passage is that anyone, and especially children, should die of hunger. But for Jesus' audience, in our gospel lesson today, the scandal lay elsewhere. Yahweh was Israel's God. He had promised to care for them and protect them against their pagan Gentile neighbors. That Yahweh would not only send a prophet to punish his own people and then in turn rain down his blessings upon Gentiles next door was incomprehensible. And that is exactly the context of our gospel lesson today. Jesus, the greater Elijah, the long-expected Messiah of Israel, left the land of his own people and went to Sidon, the same region where Elijah had gone. In the preceding verses to our gospel today, the Pharisees challenged Jesus' authority to break the Jewish traditions of purity and their diet. Jesus responded to them, what you eat doesn't pollute you on the inside. It's what comes out from your insides that make you impure. Then Jesus turned to Peter and said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. That is what defiles a man not eating with dirty hands. And then Jesus immediately picks up and goes to Sidon and meets a woman whose daughter is filled with an unclean spirit. This Gentile woman begs Jesus to save her daughter, and Jesus ignores her. It isn't fair, says Jesus, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To our 21st century ears so sensitive to racial profiling and claims of ethnic superiority, this kind of language would be unacceptable. Jesus would immediately be canceled for saying anything like that today. But Jesus wasn't being racist, but instead I'd offer to you this morning that he was being faithful to the promises that God had made to Israel for centuries that when Yahweh remembered his people, he would send them one last great king, the anointed Messiah, who would save them and bring in the kingdom of God. Israel must hear the good news of the kingdom first. If they didn't, then God himself would have been unfaithful to his promises. And how does this grieving Gentile mother respond to Jesus' rejection? She declares her faith and hope in Israel's God and his covenant faithfulness. Yes, she says, God had promised to feed his children and to bless them. But when he does, that food and the blessings that go with it fall down around the table where the little dogs may eat as much as they like. She was confident that the Gentiles would receive their blessing, but she wanted her blessing 
right now. And Jesus responded to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from the unclean spirit that very moment. What is Matthew trying to show us here in this gospel? The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were concerned about keeping laws of purity that separated them from other Jews, the non-compliant Jews, the sinners, but especially it separated them from the Gentiles. Jesus said that the Pharisees were missing the point. If they washed the outside of the bowl and the inside of the bowl was still full of dead bodies, the bowl is still dirty. If the Pharisees are meticulous about the rules that set them apart from others and designate themselves as God's chosen people, but were filled with all manner of evil, then the external observances don't really matter after all. In rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting their own membership in God's family. By holding on to Jesus for dear life and for the life of her tormented daughter, the Gentile Sidonian woman showed that she actually was a member of God's family. By birth, by nature, she was a stranger to the people of God. But by grace and her faith, she was now a child of the kingdom. Jesus had already said as much to the Gentile centurion centurion earlier in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, was indeed bringing in the kingdom. He was casting out the forces of darkness and embodying the presence of the one true God, in the midst of the world that he had made. But the question still hangs above the drama of the passage. Who would receive him now that he had come? On the Sunday before Lent, Quinquagesima Sunday, I reminded you that the theme of Lent was that we should be purged from our sins by God's grace, that we should be filled with God's word, that the eyes of our souls might be opened so that we might see Jesus revealed to us again, hanging upon the cross on Good Friday and rising victorious over the dark powers on Easter morning. Lent is about driving out the demons, the powers of death that seek to enslave God's human creatures that he made in his image. Image bearers, a kingdom of priests to serve the Lord our God. Last Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, we saw Jesus fasting in the wilderness and defeating the devil in all of his crafty temptations. And St. Paul reminded us in the epistle lesson last week that it was through Paul's own sufferings that he embodied the life of Christ and his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians. Today's lessons remind us that it is only by the power of Jesus and his mighty word that the powers of darkness that so easily capture us can be driven out. And we hear St. Paul exhorting the Thessalonians, these newly converted Macedonian Gentiles, that they too must be purged of fornication, lust, and all other uncleanness so that they might too be made holy and acceptable homes for the Spirit of God to dwell in. Each Sunday of Lent, reinforces the theme that we, each one, are on a pilgrimage that ends at the foot of the cross on Calvary's hill. 
that we desire to see Jesus in all his suffering so that we also can see him in all his glory. And when we see him with the eyes of faith, we will be transformed by his love. What did this Canaanite woman want more than anything? She wanted her daughter to be restored to health. And she believed that Jesus was the one who could do that for her. She believed in the transformative power of Jesus. She believed that Jesus could indeed drive out the demon from her daughter because he was strong enough to defeat the forces of darkness, the powers that were killing her daughter. In a word, this woman believed in Easter. She was convinced that nothing in heaven or on earth could resist the life and the commanding words of Jesus. And so she begged him on behalf of her daughter. And in her her instant prayers, she is an example for us to follow. Lent is not so much a time for us to give up chocolate or beer or Facebook, so much as it is a time for us to reorder our loves. Giving things away is only supposed to make room for new and better things, like the devotion to God and love of our neighbor. It is in returning to God again and again in prayer that we can become the people that he wants us to be. By praying to God, we don't tell him anything that he doesn't already know about us. The contents of our consciences are always open to the searching of the Holy Spirit. God knows everything entirely. Nothing can be hidden from him. Yet it is in the act of prayer, of self-offering, of intentional devotion that we are transformed by his love and by his power. And we don't pray for ourselves alone, but for others as well. Like this woman's daughter, there are those who are precious to us, who are trapped by the powers of sin and forces that seek to enslave them. And we pray for them. But as we pray for them, if our prayers come from a true and honest heart, we must admit before our Heavenly Father that we, too, have fallen short. If we pray for others laboring under temptation, we too must confess that our lives are not the way that God has asked them to be. How can you pray for your daughter to show you more respect when you have a short temper? How can you pray for your son to have better friends and not hang around with the wrong crowd when you don't mind a wild night out occasionally? The Canaanite Woman's prayers show us that to pray for the deep suffering of a loved one brings us finally to true and heartfelt confession before Almighty God. And notice how this poor woman's prayers guide us to a right attitude toward ourselves. How do we respond to insult and injury? I don't believe that any of us would have expected, would have accepted this kind of treatment from anyone that Jesus gave to this poor woman, ignoring her, calling her a dog. From the earliest moment, children on the playground learned to say, it's a free country, I can do what I like. Or, you can't do that, it's not fair. And we move through life with what our teachers and counselors called a healthy self-respect, enable us to do things, say things like, I'm not asking for special treatment, I'm just asking for my rights. I don't disagree. I firmly believe in the rule of law over the rule of tyranny. 
And while that is true, it's not the greatest truth. Demanding your rights here in this life may get you far, but it will not get you to God. Before him we have no rights, only hopes and prayers. Our Heavenly Father is not a tyrant. He is not a dictator. But we have no power to demand anything of him. He is the potter. We are the clay in his hands. But perhaps you've noticed that the prayer book places the prayer of humble access right before you receive the bread and wine from the altar each morning when you come to communion here at All Saints. And the Canaanite woman stands at our elbow each Holy Communion and gives us the words to say, We do not presume to come to this thy table. O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Dear friends, our sister, the Canaanite, prayed for her daughter and prayed for herself to Jesus. She prayed with a deep hunger, knowing that only Jesus could give her what she truly desired. She prayed tirelessly and wouldn't allow her own pride to keep her from entering into joy. Let us then pray like her and with her that we too may enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen.